And the last time that we gathered, we considered the biblical command of tithing. <clears throat> and I asked the, the question as we began last time. What do you think of? How do you feel when you hear the word tithing? Is it, is it a word that you cringe at as you once cringed at the word Sabbath? We approach this teaching from the uh, what's called presupposition. We presuppose that there is unity, <clears throat> not absolute unity, but unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you remember this. We learn that we must not hold the view that the Old Testament and the New Testament are completely divorced from one another. Nor should we hold the view that there are vast differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. In order to make this point, we learn that the saints from the Old Testament were saved in the same way that the saints in the New Testament were saved. We believe and affirm that God's people have always been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Adam until you and I here today and beyond, should the Lord tarry. There is no difference in salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament. Both Old Testament and New Testament are the unfolding of the saving purpose and promise of God. We then turned our attention to ask, who are the people of God? And many of us held the belief that there were actually two people of God or that God has always had two separate peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles later. But God's word actually teaches the contrary. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches, God's word teaches that the people of God is and always have been the church of God. We, those who have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, we are the true Israel of God. The church did not replace Israel as the people of God. Rather, the church, those who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, have always been the true people of God. And we stand in unity with Old Testament Israel. The church is, is not a new invention of God. The church is not a new invention, if you will, of the New Testament. Rather, the church is those who have placed their faith in the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church has always been those who have placed their faith in that skull-crushing seed. The Bible says in Romans 2.22, 2.28, actually 2.28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. The apostle declares or describes all true believers in Christ as being true Jews. Not that we are Jews in a nationalistic sense or that we are Jews in an ethnic sense, but that we are Jews in the sense that we are the people of God, the elect of God. Why? The apostle tells us because a true Jew is not one in the physical sense, but one in the spiritual sense. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart, not merely of the flesh. What does the Paul, what does the uh, apostle say in Galatians? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 329. Christians are those who are the offspring of Abraham. We then learned that the moral law of the Old Testament is still binding upon believers today. We confirm that the ceremonial laws, the feast meals, the celebrations have all been fulfilled in Christ. 
and they are no longer binding on us, which caused us to ask this question. Has Christ fulfilled the tithe? Has Christ fulfilled the tithe? The tithe was given to the priest of the temple. The tithe was not performed by the priest of the temple. Do you hear that? The Christ was the, 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 the tithe was given to the priest of the temple. The tithe was not performed by the priest of the temple and therefore not, not fulfilled in any kind of way. If Christ has fulfilled the tithe, in what kind of way was tithe a type that must be fulfilled or has been fulfilled in Christ? That's a very important question. No, brothers and sisters, we affirm that the tithe was not a ceremonial law. It was not a ceremonial law that was fulfilled in Christ, but rather it is a moral law that is still binding on us today. Now, that is very important. I I am making a provocative assertion that the tithe is a moral law. How is the tithe a moral law? That should be blaring out of your mind right now. How in the world are you going to tell me tonight that the tithe is a moral law? Well, it is my task with God's help this evening to set forth evidence from God's word of how the tithe is a moral law. Or to say it another way, how the tithe is a law of nature written on the hearts of the image bearers of God, humanity. So with God's help. Let us begin this evening. We have just three points. Number one, here's your first one. Tithing is a law of nature. Therefore, tithing is our moral obligation. I'll say it again. Tithing is a law of nature. Therefore, tithing is a moral obligation. Again, and admittedly, and even intentionally, a provocative and even controversial statement. What exactly am I saying by stating that tithing is a law of nature? I am asserting that the biblical command to tithe is a law that has been written on the hearts of man. The Bible teaches that the moral law of God, listen now, was not first revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses. You hear that? The moral law of God was not first revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses. Rather, the law was first revealed or written on the heart of man when at creation and confirmed by by nature by the nature of God's creation around him. So tithing was not first in, impl- or implemented, revealed at Mount Sinai, but rather tithing was first implemented on the heart imprinted if you will, on the heart of man at creation. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 2 in order to understand some biblical ethics. Romans chapter 2 and verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Drop down to verse 14. For when Gentiles... Who what? What does your Bible say? Who do not have the law by what? By nature. Do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. How is that so? They show that the work of the law is what? 
written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is the apostle saying? The apostle is saying exactly what we have asserted from the the outset of this sermon, that the Ten Commandments of God did not begin when the Ten Commandments were codified on stone tablets, but rather when God formed man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that is when the law was written or established in the hearts of man. God has written his law on the hearts of man at creation. By, by nature, man knows God's law. Even those who don't have God's law, the apostle said, even the Gentiles who don't have the law, do by nature the very things that the law requires. Why? The apostle tells us because the law has been written on their hearts. The Ten Commandments, when they are codified, written on stone tablets, are a republication of the law of nature. So then, how is the tithe a law that has been written on the hearts of men? We are asserting that the law, the, the, the tithe is a moral law. We are asserting that, according to Scripture, the law has been written on the hearts of men. Where is the law of tithing in my heart? How is the command of tithing more natural, a more natural command written on the hearts of men rather than a ceremonial command that has been done away with by the law or with the law? We agree. Christ has fulfilled the law. Amen. Is there still a law of God that we must abide by and live by? Is there still a law? We believe so. We believe that we are still obligated to obey the moral law of God. Listen, not so that we can be justified by our obedience, but so that we might display that we are people who have been justified, who have been brought from death to life. We don't obey the moral law to be justified. We obey the moral law as a display that we have been justified, that we have been brought from death to life. We are not freed from the law, but we are freed to the law. Someone may say, well, that's not what Scripture says. We are freed from the law. In what sense? We are freed from the law in the sense that we are no longer under its condemnation. Are you with me? We are freed from the law. Scripture declares it. But in what sense? In the sense that we are no longer under its condemnation when we fail to uphold it. But we are not free from the law in the sense that we are no longer obligated to obey it. Are you with me? So then, what of this tithe? Stop beating around the bush. Get to the tithe. How can we include tithing as a part of the moral law that we are still obligated to obey? Brothers and sisters, we must understand that when we consider the moral law, that there are certain, listen to this now, certain outworkings of the law that are displayed in a variety of ways in our lives and yet those outworkings fall under the moral law that we are obligated to obey or that has been written on our hearts what do i mean i mean this consider the third commandment what is the third commandment men of the race what is the third commandment you already forgot your third commandment do not take the lord's name in vain is that a moral law someone please say amen It is a moral law. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It is one of the commandments that has been written on our hearts. 
Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to not take the Lord's name in vain? What does it mean to not take the Lord's name in vain? Does it simply mean to, to refrain from taking the Lord's name in vain in that you are not to use coarse language that involves God's name? That we are not to swear with God's name? Is that what, what taking God's name in vain only means? Brothers and sisters, that is at the very base one of the outworkings of that commandment. But it is not. The only thing that is connected to the commandment of do not take the the Lord's name in vain. What else? How else could we take the Lord's name in vain? Making a false promise in the name of God. Brothers and sisters, when false teachers make false promises in the name of God, they take God's name in vain. When false teachers make false promises that God will give you so-called health, wealth, prosperity beyond your imagination, not a hundredfold, but ten thousandfold, they are taking God's name in vain and thus violating the moral law of God. They are using God's name in order to selfishly gain. From those who are either wittingly or unwittingly believing their false promises that are in God's name. I speak not only of so-called uh, prosperity gospel preachers who make wild and outlandish promises about your health and wealth. But I speak also of the Muslim who makes the promises that your works will gain you a right standing before God. They are taking God's name in vain. I speak of the Mormon who makes the false promise that in the name of God, that you could one day be a God of your own planet. And I speak also of the atheist who claims that God is dead. They are taking God's names in God's name in vain. This is the outworking of the third commandment to not take God's name in vain. Believing a lie spoken in the name of God, taking God's name in vain. But let's take this a step further. Not only are the false promises made in the name of God a violation of the third commandment, but also, listen to this, refusing to believe true promises of God. Refusing to believe the true and right promises of God is also a violation of God's command to not take his name in vain. How so? The one who hears the promises of God and yet still refuses to believe. The one who hears the promises of God and scoffs at God's promises is accusing the Almighty of being untrue, of being a liar. This, dear ones, is a violation of God's command to not take his name in vain. And they are the outworkings of this moral command. And yet, we only have do not take the Lord's name in vain. But the rest of Scripture gives us insight as to what that looks like in our lives. Believe the promises of God. Do not believe the false prophets. I can't give my tithe. Why not? Because if I give my tithe, I will not be able to have enough money to eat. If I give my tithe, I will not be, have enough, be able to have enough money to pay my rent. If I give my tithe, I will not have enough money to pay my electric bill or have that party that I'd love to have this weekend. But what has God promised that he will provide when you give your tithe? 
And when we say, I will not because I must pay those bills, then you are taking God's name in vain by saying, I don't trust what God has promised. I need to take care of me first. And if there's extra, then I will give to God. Is that what God said, though? Is that what God commanded? God has not commanded that. If we say we we refuse to give our tithe because of these bills, then we again violate the third command. We take God's name in vain because we refuse to believe his promises. Can we take this application to another command? Of course we can. Consider the moral command of Christ to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord Jesus is not making up a new command. But he is quoting from the Shema, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Brothers and sisters, how is this lived out? How do you live out, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself? This is lived out, and it's been expressed for us in the law that's been imprinted on our hearts. How do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? We honor our parents. We abstain from murdering or doing harm to our neighbors. We are faithful to our spouses. We do not steal. We do not covet what belongs to our neighbors. We do not lie. We see the the outworkings of what it means to to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, which is a moral command of God. What about tithing? The Lord Jesus said, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Brothers and sisters, how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind? How do you honor God in such a way that we show that we love him more than anything? That we adore him more than anything. We obey what he's commanded. How is that lived out? Are we to make up our own ideas of how we are going to love God? No. This is called the regulative principle. God instructs for us how we are to worship him. And he says in, in Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. One of the ways in which the moral law is obeyed. One of the ways that we do not have other gods before God, one of the ways that we do not commit idolatry, one of the ways that we do not take the Lord's name in vain, and one of the ways that we honor the Lord on his Sabbath day is we give the first fruits of our income. We give the tithe. That is one of the ways that we show that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You spend your money on that which you most adore. Malachi 3.10, one of our blessed brothers said, in the past when Malachi was read, I used to say, I know where he's going. But I pray that when you hear these scriptures, you say yes and amen. Because this is what God has commanded. This is not what a pastor is using to manipulate you. This is what a pastor is using to bring you to a place that you understand. This is what God has commanded. And in order for you to live out All that God has commanded, you must obey his word. Bring the tithe, the full tithe, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. No more what? No more need. Did he say no more wants? No, because we've got a long list of wants, don't we? But no more need. The Lord God commands it when we tithe. 
we honor him by showing that we have faith in him. How is faith in God displayed in our tithing? Faith is displayed when we trust that God will provide for every one of our needs when we obey his command to give. He has promised that if we trust him by giving the first of our tithe, that he will supply for us and there will be no more need. This is one of the ways in which the moral law of not taking God's name in vain, of loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is lived out before God. Brothers and sisters, tithing is a moral law. Is there any more evidence pointing to the fact that tithing is a moral law? Of course there is. Number two, tithing predated the law. Tithing predated the law. Tithing predated the law of Moses and was practiced by the patriarchs before the old covenant. Before the old covenant. If we could find, now here's, this is important. If we could find a law that began only when the old covenant was introduced, then we could make a strong argument that it was annulled or done away with along with the old covenant. Are you with me? But if we could find a law that was present before the introduction to the old covenant, then we must conclude that this is a moral law and not part of the old covenant. You got that? Tithing did not originate with the old covenant. Tithing was present before the law of the old covenant. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And verse 19. This is Moses before Melchizedek. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed him. And said, blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God most high, for possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Let me read on that. I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who have left with me. Let Anir, Eskal and Mamre take their share. Though God had made promises to Abram. And made it known that Abram was chosen among the people. The Abrahamic covenant did not begin until the 15th and 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. Therefore, tithing predates anything connected with the old covenant of Abraham. And what do we find Abraham doing? Abraham is tithing. He is doing that which he knows by the law of nature. Not by a covenant, but by the law of nature. This was not a one-time event either. The whole issue of tithing once again arises in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 22. Jacob is tithing. These passages suggest that tithing was not a ceremonial law that was introduced with Moses. This was not a ceremonial law that was fulfilled in Christ. But it is a law of nature that predates the law of Moses. What adds significance to all of these is the historical evidence from the ancient world showing that tithing 
was known and practiced, listen, among heathen nations. Among heathen nations. Brother Ray, could you turn the arm, please? Remember, if we are saying that something is a law of nature, brothers and sisters, if something is a law of nature, it cannot be true for just one specific nation. It must be true for all peoples created in the image of God. Does that make sense? If something is a law of nature, it must be true for everyone, not just the Jews. Tithing, then, was not a unique practice only to Israel. Tithing was not unique to the particular covenants that God made with Israel. And tithing is not unique to the specific laws that God gave to Israel. Henry Lansdale, in his work, The Sacred Tent, gives evidence that the nations outside outside of the influence of special revelation or outside of the influence of God's people, practice tithing as a religious duty. He shows in that book that tithing, giving a tenth, was known and practiced among the, among the ancient Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans. Now, brothers and sisters, because something was practiced by a pagan nation, such as the Babylonians, is not in and of itself evidence that, the, that tithing is a law of nature, but it is a very interesting point. What are all these pagan nations doing tithing? Why are all these pagan nations tithing? If tithing is only a ceremonial law of Israel that has been fulfilled in Christ, there's something more. There's something more to it. In order for a moral law to be a law of nature, it must be universal. It must be a law that everyone abides by instinctively or by nature. The company, Box Lunch. You ever been to that store in the mall? Really cool things. A lot of novelty items. Provides, Box Lunch, provides a meal to the hungry for every $10 that you spend. What would a meal cost? About a dollar. What is that? That's a tithe. Is Box Lunch a Christian-owned and operated organization and, and corporation? No, they're not. The watch company, it's called We Wood, plants a tree for every watch that they sell. What is the lowest price of their watches? $55. How much does it cost them to buy and plant a tree? About $5. What is that? That's a tenth. Is that We Wood? organization a christian owned and operated corporation no they're not hmm a corporation or company called hand in hand sells soaps and other things my niece faith would love that place they give a bar of soap and a month of clean water to a child in need their soaps at the lowest price are about 14 dollars each what does it cost for them to provide soap and water for a child about a dollar or two what is that? It's about a tenth. Maybe more, maybe less. Arnold may know. Are they a Christian-owned and operated organization? No, they're not. Brothers and sisters, what are all these non-Christian companies doing tithing or giving a tenth of what they receive back? They are obeying instinctively a law of nature that has been written on their hearts. Everyone knows they should give. Some know that it's the right thing to do but still refuse to do it. But most people believe they should give. Why do people who are not saved give to the homeless? 
Why do people who are not saved give a tip and sometimes more than a tip? Why do people give to, t- to charities, to reliefs, and to disaster fundraisers? Because it's written on their heart. They're doing something instinctively that God has placed on the inside of them to do, to give. And that is why when the offering baskets pass you and you don't give, you and your heart know you are guilty. That is why when you give a dollar, when you know you could be giving ten or more, a dollar which is not your tithe, ten that will go to Taco Bell after church, you know in your heart you are doing something wrong, but hoping no one catches you. Imagine if we were to bring out your tithing record, which we won't do. Some would not want that at all. Does it prove our point? No. But it proves the point that it's more natural than ceremonial. Number three, and finally, we read Genesis chapter 14, tithing to Melchizedek. Tithing to Melchizedek, this is your third point, confirms the Christian's obligation to tithe and clarifies to whom he should tithe. I'll say that again. Tithing to Melchizedek confirms the Christian's obligation to tithe and clarifies to whom he should tithe. You don't need to go back there again, but just take it as a note. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 24. We've seen already that tithing is a natural law. We've seen that Abraham, the patriarch, has a very important significance as well in relation to tithing before the law to whom and to whom we should give the tithe to. Follow me on this. Abraham is the father of faith or the father of the faithful. It should not surprise us then that tithing from Abraham to or Abraham to Melchizedek is made much of in, in Hebrews chapter seven. Let's go there. Now, we're talking about Abraham being an example. Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews makes much of Abraham tithing to Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. I think I said that better the second time around. Uh, Verse 1, and we will read to verse 10. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Ab- and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, of, a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the God, the Son of God, he continues a a priest forever. Verse 4. So how great this man, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, Though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man does not have this descent from them received. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. But this man who does not have this descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that they're inferior, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. There are many things that are true about Melchizedek. Listen to what they are. He provided a priestly meal of bread and wine for Abraham. Melchizedek did. He blessed Abraham and his seed. Melchizedek did. He received tithes from Abraham and his seed. Now consider that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Meaning, Melchizedek is, uh, real quick, Melchizedek is not the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a type of Christ. If you recall, a type is a person, place, or thing that foreshadows or points to Christ. Christ being the anti-type, the fulfillment of, the substance of that person, place, or thing that, that it pointed to. Does that make sense? This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews, who we believe is Paul, is making the point of. He points to Christ as being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he points to what Melchizedek is and what Christ will be, but in a greater sense. How so? The Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, like Melchizedek, offers a meal. See how they both offer a meal? Melchizedek gives Abraham a meal. Christ gives us a meal. Which meal is greater? The meal of Christ. Why? Because it is a sacred meal of what? His own body and blood symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Here's the type, Melchizedek, that is pointing to something greater in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The Lord Jesus Christ, like Melchizedek, also pronounces blessing. But it's a greater blessing. It's a greater blessing than Melchizedek's blessing. Why? Because Melchizedek's blessing promised blessing to Abraham in the land. But it was temporary. The blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ that he pronounces on those who trust in him is one of justification and ultimate glorification in, in glory, not for a temporal time, but for eternity. See that the blessing of Melchizedek points to the greater blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very epistle of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the great high priest over the house of God. So then, if Abraham tied to the priest of God, Melchizedek, then who should we tie to? We, who are the spiritual seed of Abraham, must also follow the pattern of our father of the faith, Abraham, who ties to the priest. We have a priest, don't we? It's not me. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. Melchizedek was a priest. Christ is the greater priest. Just as Abraham paid tithes to the priest, Melchizedek, we, the spiritual seeds of Abraham, pay our tithes to the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you should ask, how do I pay tithes to Christ? He's in heaven. How can I pay tithes to the one who is in heaven? When we give our tithes, they are an act of worship and obedience to God. 
Where should they be given? We follow the pattern of the Old Testament, wherein the tithe was brought to the house of God. And it was cared for under the stewardship of the Levitical priest of God. Those who served God in the house of God as they served the people of God. We can trace this. We find that later, the tithe that was paid to Melchizedek was later paid to the, the priest of Levi. The priest served in the house of God, served the people of God. The tithe provided for the needs of the house of God and for the priest who served God as they served the people of God. So if Abraham, the father of faith, believed it to be his moral obligation to give or pay tithes to the priest in honor of the priestly meal provided for him by Melchizedek. And later, the people of God gave their tithes in honor to God for the priestly meal provided for them by the priest of Levi. How can we receive spiritual food each Lord's day and not respond in a similar holy response or as a similar holy response as that of Abraham, the father of faith, and the people of God who followed him thereafter? What did I just say? Each Lord's day. Each Lord's day Sabbath, your elders, those who serve God by serving God's people, labor, labor to provide a spiritual meal. Have you eaten well spiritually today? Labor to provide a spiritual meal for your spiritual well-being. They labor to keep watch over your souls. They labor to counsel with you, to correct you, to teach you, to admonish you. And all the while, all three of them have full-time jobs. And each Lord's Day Sabbath, you eat well. You eat well. And should we neglect to follow the same pattern as our father Abraham, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, by refusing to honor God with our tithe? Here's where the bad hermeneutics kick in. We don't have a priest. <clears throat> there is not an earthly temple. Really? We don't have a priest? We don't have a temple anymore? Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the tithe belongs to the Lord. The, the tithe was paid to the, the Levitical priest. We see this in Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 12, Nehemiah chapter 10. I can go on and on. The tithe belonged to God and was given to the priesthood. There is clear and wide evidence that the tithe belongs to God, and it is brought into the house of God. And the priest of God are made stewards over that tithe. So going back to the question, how do I pay tithes to a priest who is in heaven? Though our high priest is in heaven, he has left an authorized institution on earth that he has empowered to act on his behalf and to represent him on earth. Listen, not infallibly. We do not believe or practice as Rome believes or practices that the church is infallible. But we do believe, according to scripture, that Christ has given the church authority to act on his behalf. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Look at Matthew chapter 18. You don't need to turn there. But do when you have time to study them. Matthew chapter 16 is the universal church of God. That Christ has given the power and keys of the kingdom to Matthew chapter 18. We see that Christ has also given authority to the local church. What's the point? The point is that the church has been empowered by Christ to act and represent Christ on the earth. For this reason, first Timothy chapter three, verse 15, we are told that the church is the house of God which is identified as God's temple. We are the temple of God. We don't have a temple. Yes, we do. Scripture claims and 
pronounces the people of God to be the temple of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, we are told that Jesus is a great priest over the house of God, the house of God being the church of God. First Peter chapter two and verse five in the New Testament speaks of a priesthood, a royal priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices in God's temple. Who is that? The church. The church really does represent Christ on earth. It is the temple of God on earth. And we can't escape that the tithe must be brought to the temple. And in bringing it to the temple, it is brought to the priest of God who are stewards over the tithe, who are the priests of God. They are the elders and deacons of the local church. Brothers and sisters, there is more than ample evidence to prove that the tithe is a moral law. It is a moral obligation. We've seen that tithing predates the covenant, old covenant. We have seen and clarified to whom we are to tithe. Now, is there anything left to consider in this teaching on tithing in the series, what the things that the things we do? Is there anything left to consider? Of course there is. There is the matter of how now. We've learned who, we've learned what, we've learned where, and we've learned why. Next week, we shall consider when and how to tithe. And remember, your obedience in tithing is an act of worship before God. It is your spiritual act of worship before the Almighty who owns all. When we tithe, Let it be not just your moral obligation, but let it be your great privilege to declare that God is foremost in your life and that all you have belongs to him and that God has graciously given to you. Let us pray.